Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to another episode of Ways to Live podcast. I'm super excited today because I this is a special episode. I have my dad with me. We are in Idaho right now and I've been wanting to interview my dad. Um, I'm really excited to introduce him to you guys because he is a really amazing person. He's done a lot of hard things in his life. He's become a really successful person, but he's also super fun. He loves a wide variety of things, everything from musicals and theater to architecture to um, motorcycle riding, uh, funny movies. My dad, I feel like he can find the good things in life and he really enjoys them. And that's something I really admire about him. I think he's a multifaceted person. And so our topics are are a little multifaceted, but specifically, I wanted to talk about kind of how he grew up and then how he became successful because while he was in school, in high school, I, I don't think, at least from what he's told me, my mom's told me, his focus wasn't really school or like getting good grades. And then he turned into kind of a genius um, when he came back and went to college and and then the rest of his life. And so he kind of just had this big transformation and I think that's really cool about him. And so I'm excited to interview him and ask him questions about that. And I hope that it inspires the listeners um, just to know that like wherever you are in life, if you have a weakness or whatever, it can definitely um, turn into a strength of yours um, by maybe applying some of the things that my dad did or some things that he's going to talk about today. We're also going to dive into some politics because my dad is a business owner and he employs a lot of people. And so I love listening to his views on politics because I realize that, you know, the political um, policies that get put into place he knows what affects people on um, in the working class. And so I really appreciate and value what he has to say about, about it. Um, he just has a lot of really cool views and experiences. So um, without further ado, here's my dad. Dad, say hi. Hi. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. We're excited to have you. This is going to be fun and kind of like interesting because I've never had a conversation with my dad in kind of this sort of, it's not really formal, but a little bit formal. New for me too. Yeah, it's kind of funny. All right, sweet. So I thought, Dad, you could just share with them um, some things about how you grew up. I grew up in Idaho. My my dad um, grew up as a lumberjack in Island Park. And I was, when I was first born, I lived in Island Park, which is a small, a really small kind of, uh, at that time it was kind of a logging town just south of Yellowstone. And then we we moved to Shelley, Idaho, uh, just east of Shelley, Idaho, a little town called Taylor. Uh, We lived there until I was in the fourth grade. And then my grandmother... um, my my grandpa died when my dad was was very young and my grandmother raised six kids she was an amazing person and she one of the things she did she was in to reality and she she horse traded for an old volcano if you if anyone knows the Manan Buttes they are just west of Rexburg 
and the South Manan Butte um, is, is right along the Snake River. She horse traded for the entire uh, South Manan Butte, which is an old extinct volcano. And um, my dad and his, his brother and, and my grandmother decided that they were going to move out onto this butte. No one really lived out there. Very few people lived out there. And uh, so they, they went out and stuck a shovel in the ground and built their residences on the butte. So um, I grew up on this huge, this huge piece of ground, um, sagebrush and juniper trees and right along the river where there's cottonwoods and I, I did a lot of hunting and fishing, just constantly out hunting and fishing and I really, really enjoyed living uh, where we grew up. And incidentally, that's where we live now. We live, um, we live not too far from, we live about a mile from, uh, from my home on, on the same uh, butte. We live on the north side and I, I grew up on the south side. But yeah, that's a quick, a quick history of, of where I've lived. Yeah, it was so cool growing up here. And I love that it was, I know my grandma worked really hard to um, what would you call it? Get this land that we live on. And now tons of our relatives live out here Yeah, and also a lot of other really cool people. So it's a really awesome place to live. And it was so cool to grow up here. I wanted to talk a little bit about maybe when you moved first on the Butte. So the Butte, a Butte is like kind of a small mountain or like a big hill, right? Well, it's actually, these are volcanoes that we live on. Yeah. They're, they're extinct like, they're volcanoes. Extinct volcanoes. Yeah. yeah, which is crazy. Yeah. And so um, I know that you grew up pretty poor, right? Yeah. Can you talk about that house that you lived in on the view and everything? So when I grew up in Shelley, it, it was a great place to live, but we had some neighbors that were kind of a, let's say they were a bad influence on my brother and I. And and um, my mom and dad were they were they were ready to get out of there. And at the time when we moved, this would have been the late seventies. This is when Carter was in in office, and there was hyperinflation, and interest rates were like eighteen percent, crazy. And and my mom and dad couldn't sell the house, but they couldn't get out of there quick enough. So my dad kind of my dad was a builder, and he he went up and built a concrete box and he insulated the exterior of it with polyurethane foam and we moved in. So my house was orange and it had, it's horrible. <laughs> it was, it was, uh, yeah, I didn't like to take my friends, like my close friends I would have come to my house that, that lived, that lived nearby and nearby was at least you know i think eric miller was my was the closest friend that lived to me and and he was about a mile and a half away maybe two miles away so they would come to the house but i certainly didn't like others to come to the house because um we didn't have any walls in our house um, my, my mom and dad had a bedroom and their own bathroom and then and then myself and my siblings all all well we grew up in what is now my dad's shop and it had dividers in it. So we had like a bedroom, then a divider and, and this divider is like an office divider kind of thing. 
and then a bedroom and then a divider and then but it was it was uh it was unique i'll put it that way our door we had a barn door like an old hook and latch barn door that you run a leather strap through a hole and you pull the leather strap and it and it pulls a big bar and, and opens the bar um it was a huge door and to lock the door at night you just pulled the leather strap through the door and and uh, then no one could open the door until you stuck the leather strap back through the door. That's so crazy. So how long did you live in that uh, box before you guys had like a normal looking house? Um, well, I, I'm still, I, I think uh, Grandpa Bear and Grandma Ellie's house is probably still not normal. But yeah. Much yeah. more normal than it was. Uh-huh. So when I was a senior, my dad if you would kind of consider the bottom like the basement of a normal house, just the concrete of a basement, then he built the upper portion when I was a senior. Gotcha. So I grew up most of my... Wow, clear till you were a senior? Yeah. That's nuts. And so when, for those of you that know or live in Idaho or Rexburg or around this area... You might know that my grandpa started a company called T- Dome Technology where he patented a way to build these huge domes or even small domes, right? And they're just basically structures. And then they found out that there's lots of uses for them like storage and they're hurricane proof and they created a whole company with them and now they do business all over the world building these really big domes. Um, can you just talk about when Grandpa Barry started that company? Just like a really small, because it, it's a big part of now our lives and my dad's job. And so maybe just a little brief history on Grandpa Barry and starting that company. Yeah, so uh, my dad, after, after trying to make a go of it to continue the family business, the sawmill business, um, which, which was failing um he he went into business with his brother and they started a an insulating business insulating potato sellers with polyurethane foam it was a new product and and they did very well but like any startup company they had several challenges and they were both very interested in new technologies it was a is an exciting period in american history where New technologies in building and and lots of areas were were blossoming and and both my dad and his his brother were interested in this and they they had an idea to um, take the polyurethane foam that they used with a concrete material using a method called shockreting um, to inflate a, a balloon and then go on the inside and spray polyurethane foam and shockrete with reinforcing and, and make it rigid, make it make a dome. They both were intrigued by uh, Buckminster Fuller, who was, uh, at, at the time, he was a, a very progressive, state-of-the-art engineer who had engineered a geodesic dome. So they, they found a balloon manufacturer in Des Moines, Iowa, and they asked him to build a balloon. It was a hundred foot diameter. They found a professor 
His name was Arnold Wilson. He's a professor at BYU who actually um, was a specialist, a special engineer, in who had a great knowledge of, of what they call concrete thin shells. Domes are one type of concrete thin shell. And he helped them engineer the dome, and and they built it for a potato cellar. And um, that that's that was the first one that happened in Shelly, Idaho, in 1976. So cool. I love that story because I feel like it just embodies like the American spirit and entrepreneurship, and I think it's really cool. And Grandpa Barry has definitely always been an entrepreneur. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think he passed a lot of that on to you. And so, yeah, this is exciting. I'm, I'm excited to uh, learn more. So you you lived in like an orange um, concrete box until you were a senior in high school. And do you feel like, and, and you didn't really want to bring your friends around because you're nervous about what they might think. Um, and can you just tell us a little bit about like that mentality in high school? Because I remember when I was in high school, you always told me like, not to care what people think and, you know, focus on grades, which I think is kind of what you had a hard time doing. Can you talk like a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so, I, yeah, I was self-conscious, self-conscious of, you know, of where we lived. Um, we didn't even have a well. We had a big – so my dad used polyurethane foam for everything. So <laughs> – we and 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 we lived where it was really rocky so he didn't have a way to dig a trench to take the sewer line out to where we had the septic drain field so he just took a pipe and ran it out there and and insulated it so we had this orange concrete box and then the the water line was a big tank we had this old ford truck and we would take the truck down and fill it up at my grandmother's house, at Marge's house. And then myself and my brother would drive this old truck up the hill, which I think my dad was crazy because here I was in fifth and sixth grade with my brother who is two years younger than me. And this truck was old. The brakes weren't very good. And I can remember my dad just just telling me, okay, when you drive this truck, you know, put it in second gear and don't ever take it out of gear when you're going down the hill. Just keep it in gear and you can use the gear to slow you down. You don't really need the brakes. And oh my gosh. so he trusted me to drive this water truck down to the bottom of the hill, fill it up, and then drive it to the top of the hill. And when we drove it to the top of the hill, we put it in first gear, and we weren't supposed to ever take it out of first gear. And what would the truck so do? What was it for? It had a big water tank on it, so we would fill the water tank. And that's how you got water. That's how we got water, yeah. Oh, my goodness. And so, yeah, I was very – I was just very conscious of that, and I was – I always I wanted designer jeans and I wanted all everything designer because I was very conscious of that. Um, and I remember my mom and dad could couldn't care less about designer anything, um, so they would buy me tough skin jeans, which I hated. I 
I would have big tears when we went school shopping because I wanted designer jeans and That's I got so sad. I got tough skin jeans. I didn't get <laughs> I didn't get any designer jeans. Oh, but my mom, bless her heart, she would always like they had these these argyle like alligator I can't even remember the name of them now, but like the shirt had like an alligator on it and that was that was like designer and cool and and she would always get me one or two things that was that was designer. <laughs> and then I loved long hair. I wanted long hair. But but not like not like really long hair, like the Brady Bunch long hair, like over your ears. I just wanted not like hippie long hair. I didn't like hippie long hair, but I wanted I wanted the hair over my ears. But Marge cut my hair. My grandmother cut my hair with a pair of oyster clippers that she would go to town and cut off all of my long, beautiful blonde locks. <laughs> and I couldn't, I never could have my hair over my ears. You never did? Um, No, I never did because that, that style went away and then... Then everybody had a mullet, and I did have kind of a mullet, a little bit. But I I shaved the sides of my head when I was like a junior and a senior, and I kind of had a little bit of a stupid, ugly mullet. But so anyway, so I didn't. You ask about you know, yeah, I was very conscious of those things, and and looking back, I realized how, you know, sort of shallow that was, and how. You should be self-confident no matter who you are um, and maybe not so dependent on uh, what other people think. So I tried to uh, steer you um, in the in the right direction. Yeah. I think it's hard in high school, though. It is because your friends have a big influence. And yeah. Pop culture has a big influence. So... And then in high school, though, do you think that made you make you not really want to focus on grades as much? And the reason I ask you this is because I feel like you did kind of a 180, you know, once you got and we'll talk about that like switch. But I think it's important that people know that like when you were in high school, you didn't really care that much about your grades. Yeah, I didn't. Um, I think my parents wanted me to get good grades. But it wasn't, it wasn't like a requirement. Um, and, and I was, I lived in this wonderful place that you could go, I mean, I would come home and I would be out the door and my, my brother and I would be out the door. We, we rode our bicycles. We got a motorcycle when we were little, we would, we would ride on that motorcycle together everywhere my my best friend still today lived not too far from me. His name was Gary Lobson. Gary Lobson was the coolest kid in the school, always the coolest kid in the school. He was a motocross racer. I mean, is there anything more cool than being a motocross racer? No. There was nothing more cool than being a motocross racer. And Gary was, I was skinny and small, and Gary was huge. He was like a man-child. In the seventh grade, he was the same age as he's the same 
height, and I think he weighed more in the seventh grade than he did than he does today. So he was he was six foot tall, and uh, I was a midget. But he had a motorcycle, and he raced motorcycles. So we would go ride motorcycles together all over the Butte. The Annis Buttes had a, a a motorcycle track, and we would ride there, and we would go out to the lava flows and ride in the lava flows. We rode motorcycles everywhere. And we um, we did we did everything that boys like to do. And I we played football, we played basketball, we hunted, we fished, we rode motorcycles. So you liked all that fun stuff except school. Yeah, I did not like school. I did not I would fake being sick to not go to school and then I would go ride my motorcycle. I would I did everything I could to stay out of school. I did not see any point in going to school when I had all these other fun things to do. I mean, it makes sense, kind of. (laughs) (laughs) So, but um, you dated mom in high school. Mom was really focused on school. Yeah, she was was extremely focused on school. Did did you just think she was like, that's just how she was? and It didn't make you want to focus on it then? No, I didn't have any problem. I mean, one of my really good friends, Bill Taylor, he was an excellent student. And, but I looked at him and just thought, why? I mean, why would you do that when you have all these other fun things to do? Gotcha. Um, Looking back on that, I'm sure you wish you would have, like, studied harder. But, like, why? Because you kind of became successful. So if well, I think you can do both. I think mm-hmm. you can do both. Mm-hmm. And I think that, and I could have done, I could have, you know, it wouldn't, later in life I had to study and I had to learn all those things. I had to work really, really hard. And I wouldn't have had to work quite as hard had I, you know, learned a few things in school. Because I didn't really learn very much when I was in, in high school. Okay. So when did that, like, flip happen? When did you, because now, I mean, I'll just speak for you. Like, you're really smart at math and engineering and all of those things. So how did that? Well, I remember, so when I was in the seventh grade or eighth grade, I think it was the eighth grade, I had Mr. Rounds. And you had to take a test. I think I was, you know, reasonably smart but I just I wasn't dedicated at all I was kind of a goofball in school and you had to take a test in order to go into algebra and I took the test and I actually passed it but I went and and I talked to my dad and I said dad you know what what should I go into should I go into this general math class or should I take algebra and he said no you should take algebra and and so I went to to Mr. Rounds and I said can I go into algebra and he said absolutely not he said you know i don't know what you're going to do in life but math is never going to be part of your future (laughs) so i i sort of took that and i i really didn't take any math in high school i didn't um i took the minimum the bare minimum that you needed to take in high school in math just just general math or whatever and a lot of it was, you know, I think it's so important for teachers to try and inspire kids. It was horrible what Mr. Round said to me. Um, yeah, that's so bad. Yeah, it was really bad. But 
But I think it's important to realize that, you know, you go through phases in life. And so with your children or with just because they may be acting at a young age one way doesn't mean that's the way they're going to turn out. Did I answer that question? Well, so then you kind of talk about how you went on a mission, an LDS mission to Korea, and how that made you realize that you could do hard things. Is that kind of what made you realize that you could be good yeah, at school? Yeah, so I, I got out of school and I went I went to, at the time, Rick's College. Um, and I roomed with a bunch of my buddies. And it was essentially more the same thing, only it was worse. I didn't do well at school at all there. I And we played 24-7. Um, I had a hard time making it to class. I basically got C's. Um, And I had planned on serving a mission. Um, I'm making it sound like, you know, my, in my upbringing, it was, I did a tremendous amount of work. Um, While I hunted and fished, I also worked. I mean, we, in the, in this community, um, that's an agricultural community, there were lots of agricultural jobs. Uh, we moved pipe in, and, and for those of you who don't know what moving pipe is, today most of the irrigation is done by automated systems, circles and wheel lines and whatnot. But in that time, they were all what they call hand lines. You had a main trunk line, and then you moved these four-inch, 40-foot-long sprinkler pipe. To water um, fields. To water fields. They Farmers were fields. Aluminum. So you'd you'd move them in the morning and you'd move them in the after, in in the afternoon. And in between we would you know, we would play. I I would uh, go play. i But lifting them is is hard and lifting a lot of them is really hard. Yeah, it was it heavy. It makes you strong. It, it made you strong. Because I remember growing up people that would move pipe we'd always talk about how they were always ripped. Yeah. Moving pipe. So anyway, I moved a lot of pipe. I, I milked cows. Um, I, I worked a lot. Um, and you worked for your dad. And I worked for my dad. And my dad, like that work wasn't even enough. My dad always had jobs for us. Like sports was not a thing in my family. Uh, I played football and I played basketball, but my parents really didn't support that. Um, they... I think they went to like one of my games ever <laughs> of all the games I ever had. That's so crazy. Um, and cause, and, and my dad didn't like that. I played sports. He was like, no, you need to work. He had, he always had little jobs set up for us in his business. He, he also sold roofing materials and part of roofing materials. He sold Ridge cap. So he set up a saw at, at home, and we would saw the shingles and make ridge cap. And we made literally thousands and thousands and thousands of ridge cap, my brothers and I did. And even my sisters came and made, made ridge cap. It was something that we just, even down in Shelley when I was, you know, little, like in the third and fourth grade, we would make ridge cap. And then... He, our garage was always full of cedar shakes and sawdust everywhere. I think we could probably do a whole episode on all the ways that Grandpa Barry has figured out how to make money. <laughs> yeah, probably so. 
So anyway, I, had no I worked, idea about I that worked a lot. I worked a ton. And while I was up at, uh, at BYU-Idaho, I worked. Um, after my after my first year at Rick's, my, my dad had a job in Algeria, just south of Algiers. And which is in Africa, which is in Africa. Yeah. And I went to Algeria and lived for like almost six months. Like I got out of school early and worked on this project and it was, it was an incredible experience. They speak, um, French. It was a lot like Morocco. Um, you're familiar with Morocco because we, I took Vanessa to Morocco and lived when she was um, going to school here. Uh, but it was, and Morocco is beautiful in its own way, but we were right on the Mediterranean Sea. Just absolutely gorgeous area. It was, uh, you know, I've never been back because Algeria um, has kind of fallen into this state of well, let's just say they're not very friendly to Americans now. But I would love to go back um, and visit Algiers and that area. Um, absolutely just one of the prettiest places on, on earth um, where we lived. And uh, we, we built a grain storage there, and we did so many things by hand. Algeria was such a poor country at that time. And things that we would do here... In America, we did so many of them by hand, and and we worked so hard. I ran the batch plant that that uh, for that project. I made all the concrete and and the the tools that we used. <laughs> they were uh, they were like from the 1920s, um, but it was an amazing experience um, to be there. Um, so yeah. So even though. You, you maybe didn't like to work hard in school. You definitely had skills for working hard. Yeah, and I didn't like to work hard, book book hard, but I I love to work with my hands. And, yeah, and, and you had lots of experiences, having a lot of responsibility and working hard. And and while we were, so I remember when we went to Algeria. I still can't believe I did this, but. I flew all by myself to Algeria, and I was 18 years old. So I, I flew to New York, and then I flew to Frankfurt, and I stayed overnight in Frankfurt, and then caught a plane from Frankfurt um, to Tunisia, um, flew into Tunis, caught another plane in Tunis, and then flew to Algiers. And I remember it was on a TWA flight. And at that time, you could smoke on the flight. And I was the only, I was the only white guy. I had, I had beautiful, long, blonde hair. Everyone else was Middle Eastern. And they were all smoking. Everyone was smoking on the plane. Every single person was smoking on the plane. I was the only one on the plane who wasn't smoking. So it you was, were essentially smoking. It was ridiculous. It was unbelievable. Oh, my gosh. So much secondhand smoke. Yeah. That's so bad. 
Also, I think it would be funny to just highlight that every time you refer to your hair back then, you call it beautiful blonde hair. It was beautiful blonde hair. That's because <laughs> my dad's bald now, <laughs> so he likes to remember his beautiful blonde hair. <laughs> um, okay, so how did let's transition into like your mission so i was in algeria uh we i was coming home we'd finished the job i was coming home and uh when you when you when you serve a mission for our church for the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints you don't know where you're going to go you fill out your paperwork you turn it in and then you're assigned an area so and you're, you're given a big envelope and while I was in Algeria, I had filled out all that information and sent it off. And my assignment came, and my mother steamed open the envelope and opened it and read it. Before you did? Before I did. So <laughs> oh, no. I came home again alone, and I remember I was in the airport in oh no did grandma tell you yeah i was in the airport in chicago and i knew that my calling was there and i was excited to come home and open it and grandma ellie couldn't stand it she spilled the beans she said you're going to korea (laughs) 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 I, i was like korea like where the heck is korea i had no idea where korea was i didn't know anything about korea i i knew we had fought a war there but i thought it was the vietnam war honestly i, I didn't know the difference between vietnam and korea so yeah i was called to korea oh my gosh and uh so maybe that experience at, at least like learning the language and i remember you telling me stories of on your mission about you and the missionaries just struggled so hard with it yeah, so Korean is is a language that's just it's so different and foreign from English. And so here I was, um, full of energy. I really wanted to go share our church with with whomever I was assigned to. I was assigned to Korea. They have all these funny funny characters. How they communicate with one another in their written language and. It was just daunting. I remember just looking at it, just going, how would one ever learn this? But for the first time in my life, I was dedicated to focus on something and study it and do so with the same enthusiasm that I had done everything else with in my life, except for school. Um, But it was hard to transition. I... I think I have attention deficit disorder, so I really have to, I really have to push myself to focus on things. And when I do, I I I can learn them really well. That's something I learned about myself um, through learning Korean. But um, I I focused on Korean. I I ate it. I drank it. I slept it. I studied it every second of every day when I was first in the MDC and then when I went to Korea. You study it for two months and all these Spanish speakers and French speakers and whatever, they're, they're talking to each other and, and you're just not doing anything. 
And when you get to Korea, you're sure that they've lied to you for two months because you really just don't understand a thing that they're telling you. I remember sitting in church just wanting to cry, just just holding back tears because everything everyone was saying to me, I wasn't understanding a single thing. I could understand when they said hello, and that was it. That was it. I couldn't even understand when they said goodbye um, because it, when they say goodbye in Korean, it's a little different. It's not, it's not, it's not as simple as goodbye. Um, and I, it was just so frustrating. What do you explain, just so they can understand the complexity of Korean, explain like why goodbye is... Well, in hello in Korean, they, they, they ask you if you're in peace. They say, 안녕하십니까. Um, and then when you leave, um, they say, um, leave in peace or, or stay in peace. Or go in peace. So if I'm leaving the room, I would say to you, stay in peace. And you would say to me, go in peace. So you always get those mixed up. And they're they're even harder to say than onyong hashimika. You'd say, onyong hikeiseyo, that, that means if you stay. And if you're going, you'd say, onyong hikeiseyo or onyong hikeiseyo. Um, so it was, yeah, it was really hard. Um but I, I buckled down and I studied it and I and I got really good at speaking Korean. How did you learn how to buckle down? Because I think a lot of people have a hard time like focusing on something and studying it. Mm-hmm. What what is what you learn helps? Well, you? One thing that really helped me is I listened to classical music. So for me, it's impossible to listen to other music and study, but classical music really calmed my mind. And allowed me to focus. So I, while I was learning Korean, I was gaining appreciation for classical music. Um, and so that that's one thing that really helped me. Awesome. Can you tell that one story of the elder that was like sobbing, and you had to like go in and tell him that like it's gonna be okay? <laughs> yeah. Well, it was just hard in Korea. I mean, not only did you have this incredibly difficult language, when we were there, Korea was kind of coming out of a third world status. So especially if you didn't live in Seoul, and, and I didn't, most of my mission, I, I lived outside of Seoul. Especially if you didn't live in Seoul, you didn't have access to American food. You ate Korean food. Korean food is about as different from American food as possible. They eat kimchi for crying out loud. Kimchi is just when when I first was introduced to kimchi, I I had not eaten. I was like a hot dog and potato and mashed potato and an eggs person. I mean that that was my realm. Like eggs, mashed potatoes, hot dogs, and hamburgers. And hamburgers had to be plain with ketchup only. <laughs> No onions. Onions were the most disgusting thing on the face of the planet. I wouldn't eat an onion to save my life. For sure. They were horrible. And so when I was introduced to kimchi, which is fermented cabbage with pepper paste, I, it was just so disgusting. I just couldn't even imagine eating this stuff. 
Didn't they like ferment it in their bathtubs? Well, they make they have big kimchi pots that they make, or tubs that they make it in, and then they put it in kimchi pots and they and they let it ferment. They make kimchi twice a year: spring kimchi and fall kimchi. And then they eat it the whole year. And then they eat it the whole year and for six just, months. For six months, it just ferments. Yeah, so you can tell like if it's spring, you get fresh kimchi, and then by the end of the summer, summer the kimchi is ripe, super ripe. Ew. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, so that was super difficult. Um, cultural differences, completely different. So I was serving in a city called Sokcho. Absolutely gorgeous place. Uh, one of the most beautiful places in the world. Right next to Soraksan, which is a mountain that's just, it's, it's right on the coast. Just incredibly beautiful. But fishing village. You're eating fish every day. You're, the church was brand new there. We had very little success. And this this friend, this elder that was with living with us in the house, not my companion. We each have a companion. He had a companion. I had a companion. Four of us living in the house. <laughs> His companion was Korean, and he was a workaholic. And he was he was wearing this kid out. And the kid hadn't been in the country very long, couldn't speak the language very well, didn't like the food. Um, his companions getting it up at five in the morning, getting getting him out on the street, bringing him back at 10, 30, 11 at night, doing it over and over and over again. And one morning I came in and I came back to the house and the Korean elder was sitting out on the steps kind of fuming. And I... I was saying like what, what's going on and he kind of shrugged his shoulders and we went into the house and and uh elder brant elder brant was sitting on a chair and he was just sobbing just crying i remember him looking at me and just and just like oh <laughs> just crying and i went over and gave him a hug so and and said oh it's it's gonna be okay elder and he's like no it's not gonna be okay i gotta go home and and i was like no you're gonna make it you're gonna make it elder and 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 he did he made it but it was it was uh it was very difficult yeah oh man that's so funny um yeah missions are missions can be really hard but i think for you, like, does the heart stick out more than the good things when you think about your mission? Oh no, I love my mission. I, 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 I mean, through a lot of discipline and focus, I, I learned the language. I also um, learned to love food. I, I credit my mission for a lot of things in my life. It, it opened up my palate. I, I had a companion who, it was my second companion. My second companion was amazing. Uh, oh, my goodness. And bless Elder Bellman and bless that I was able to have him as a companion. But he, he said, you know, he saw that I wasn't eating anything. I was withering away to nothing. I, had, I came into the mission about 195 pounds. When Elder Bellman got me, I was 145 pounds. You lost 50 pounds? Yeah, I'd lost 50 pounds. 
and I was I didn't have any fat on me at 195 pounds. So I just wasn't eating anything um, because it was just so I just couldn't do it. And Elder Bauman was just like, "Look, your 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 entire mission, you you have to, you're gonna ruin your entire mission because you won't eat anything. Like Koreans love their food, and you need to learn to love their food. So we're gonna help you learn to love their food." He said, "I went through the same thing. I had a mission companion do the same thing to me. So you're gonna eat kimchi. We're gonna eat kimchi chige, which is Korean soup." And rice every meal and you're gonna hold your nose and you're gonna eat it so we <laughs> went down and got some kimchi and made kimchi chige big old pot of kimchi chige um, which is kimchi and a little bit of meat and, and that's what it is it's just kimchi and a little bit of meat and I literally gagged it down for two weeks holding my nose while I was eating it. And then, like, I, I kind of got past the gag reflex, and I I ate it some more, and then I could eat it without gagging, and then for a month, that's all we ate was kimchi chigae, every meal, except for when we were at people's houses or whatnot. And when we went to a restaurant, we ordered kimchi chige. It was that's just what we ate. Cause you could get kimchi chige really cheap at a restaurant for like you know, like a dollar twenty or something. It was really cheap. After a month I could eat it. And it and it, it was so it opened up my palate so much that I started to eat other things. And I remember there was a there was a meal that he loved called Jajangmyeon. And jajangmyeon is these noodles with black bean paste and oil and onions. And it looked like axle grease. It looked so disgusting. But I remember eating jajangmyeon and I was like, you know what? This actually tastes pretty good. And it had onions in it. And, and then there was another... Um, meal that we ate a lot of um, just eggs and vegetables and rice chopped up and had tons of onions in it um, and I would I started to eat that and I was eating the onions and I was like I am eating an onion and I enjoy it it is like so good <laughs> and from that point I started to eat a lot of different things in Korean and I I I started to love Korean food, and so I ate everything. And that's why when you grew up, you saw that I eat, I love food, and I eat all kinds of different food, and I love it. Yep. And I think you tried to put us through, make us go through that and eat food. Yeah, probably so. <laughs> probably so. But on my mission, all I ate was chicken and rice. Sweet. Okay, so... Basically, you learned how to work hard in high school and have fun. And on your mission, you kind of did the same thing, but you learned how to study. And then, so when before you came home, were you like, okay, I, now I know how to study. I'm going to do something good in school. Or when did you decide to choose engineering and why? Well, I had thought about engineering 
um, because I met, I had met Dr. Wilson, who was my dad's engineer, and I was just so impressed by him. But I, I just told myself, there's no way you could ever be an engineer. I mean, you're not good at math. Mr. Round said you'd never be good at math. You're, you're never going to be good at math. And I wasn't good at math. And I was just like, that is not an option. And when I came home, I like, I thought, well, I did, I did make it through Korean. Maybe, maybe I can make it. I, I suppose if I go through and I'm a C student, it's better than, than anything. So I signed up for engineering. Um, and I remember just thinking, I am going to wash out. I went through engineering orientation. I, well, I first came home and I didn't sign up for engineering. I went to, to Rick's college again. And I liked this girl who was going to Utah State. And so I transferred to Utah State. And I was kind of, I first signed up for some generals again. Yeah, that was, that was Jennifer. So I first signed up for some generals again, um, and I took a math class, just a general ed math class, like, and I actually was doing pretty well at the math class. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't killing me at all. And so I transferred to Utah State, and I thought, well, I'm going to go into engineering. And I, I remember going into general orientation, and we sat down in this big auditorium, and this is all the engineering students, civil engineering, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, chemical engineering, everyone. And I remember sitting there and Ryan DuPont, Professor Ryan DuPont, who was an amazing, brilliant professor, was leading the orientation. And he said, he said, look to the left of you, look to the right of you. He said, <laughs> Two-thirds of everyone in this room is not going to make it through engineering. So the person left of you is going to be gone, but the person on the right of you is going to be gone. You can determine whether or not you're going to make it make it through engineering. Now, the funny thing was the person sitting right next to me, his, his name was John. He ended up being one of my best friends in school, and he was on the football team. And I remember thinking, there's no way this guy's going to make it through engineering. <laughs> but he was brilliant. John was brilliant, and he did. he did, yeah. He made it through. So what what obstacles did you overcome to go to school and do well in school? For the first two years, I was, I was sure that I wasn't going to drop out, but I applied myself using, you know, the principles of learning to work hard, and I, I worked hard, and I... I would get basically not not straight A's, but A's and A minuses, and I just did very well. And then, and then I'd sign up again, thinking, okay, well maybe, maybe this time I'm going to come to that class that I can't understand, that I will not be able to get through, and and, and I'll have to drop out. But sometime about my junior year, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it through engineer, engineering. Um, and not only was I making it, I was, I was uh, excelling. I was top of my class. I remember, so you had to take a course. All the engineers had to take a course. Mechanical engineers and civil engineers 
not electrical engineers, but you had to take a course from Ronald Jepson, who notoriously was one of the most difficult professors um, in the engineering school, and you had to take hydraulics. And it was a big class, lots of students, and it was an extremely difficult. And you had two tests. You had a midterm, you had a final, and I did really well in the midterm. And I remember I aced the final, and I just remember picking up picking up my test and looking at my name at the top of the class because he would he would post the scores on the outside of the door and I was the very top student and I just remember thinking okay yeah uh, not only am I going to make it I'm going to I'm going to excel at engineering and and it was a for me it was just like a period of elation like um wow I've, I've been able to conquer this this is uh um really special how much of it do you think was your own brains and how much do you think was just hard work um so people have different gifts you know one gift i have i'm able to understand things that are complex but i don't learn them very quickly and that's one thing i learned about myself like people learn things faster than i do um, and I, and I'm, you know, not really very good under pressure a lot of times, but if I have time to work something out and, and study it, I'm, I, I can understand really complex things. So, you know, I don't know, but, but that takes a lot of dedication and a lot of work. Um, so I don't know. I, you know, I, I think God gives all of us gifts, and I think he certainly gave me a gift to understand things. Um, but it also takes, you know, I think everyone has different gifts, and, and in order to develop those gifts, you need to work on, you need to be disciplined to, to do things. You know, there's a, Malcolm Gladwell writes all of these books about statistics, and he talks about, you know, there's he calls it the 10,000 hour principle nobody really ever becomes um really great at something until they put 10,000 hours into it and he talks about all these successful people that have put in at least 10,000 hours into something and i i think there's a lot of truth to that i think there's a point where you know unless you're willing to put a tremendous amount of time into something you don't know whether or not you're going to be good at it and if you do most people are. So I think that's a struggle that a lot of people have today, especially in our world. Um, we kind of live in an, you know, instant gratification culture. For sure. And so it's really hard to develop real talents yeah. or real strengths because we're just all over the place. And if one thing's not working within the first like max six months, like we're on to the next thing. Yeah. Yeah, a normal working years, two thousand hours. So you know, ten thousand hours, that's five years. You know, working solid, and so it, it is. I mean, it's kind of overwhelming. But basically, you just gotta pick something and stick with it, right? Yeah, I think so. Pick something that you enjoy and stick with it. Uh, so, like, there were obviously inspiring people to you. Um, I know that mom has always been really inspiring to you. Mom's like kind of always been a really dedicated person. Like what role did she play? 
and all this. You know, she was, I think there's a really, it's really important to have people that believe in you. You know, um, Mr. Rounds did not believe in me, um, but your mom did. And, and, you know, uh, Mimi, her mom, Diana, my mother-in-law, she did as well. Um, I remember her just telling me, you know, when I wanted to go into engineering, she was like, well, you can do it. You just got to buckle down and you just got to study and you can do it. And, and Jennifer was that way. She was like, of course you can do this. You just have to, you know, she didn't have to study really, really hard. And I know you can do it. And she believed in me. And I, I, it was a true belief, you know, I knew, I knew that she believed that I could do it. There wasn't anything fake about it. And I think that's that's maybe more important than anything. I think you and mom have always had that. Like, you really believe that we can do anything. <laughs> yeah, and, um, and I do. What have you loved about your career and what's been hard about your career? Um, so I could talk forever about this, but it's been incredibly challenging to take a new idea and make it mainstream. I... I I absolutely love architecture. Um, I love building things. And so for me, work is work, but I enjoy it. And I enjoy it so much that that it's not work. Um, I really, really do enjoy what I do. There are mundane parts of it. When you're in the middle of doing, you know, three or four hundred pages of calculations... Um, you know, that can get pretty old, <laughs> um, but it's a part of the, it's a part of the pie and you got to do every part of it. So the, probably the most challenging thing in my work has been, you know, building today. Um, there, there are all kinds of challenges when you're pushing a new type of technology. It's challenging convincing people that this technology is going to work is challenging doing things that no one has ever done before and doing it in a very big way you know we we started to build domes that were absolutely huge like how big well compare it to a thing well like the biggest dome that we've done span wise is just over 330 feet so bigger than a football field and and 200 almost 200 feet tall so like a 20-story building. So if you can imagine, you know, a football field with 20 stories on it, you know, that's that's about the size of the biggest dome that we built. And no one had ever done built these structures before. And then the loads, the things they would put on them, con- conveyors and different things, we've put over 2 million pounds on these domes in the center of the dome with with conveyors um we've built and not just one set of conveyors multiple conveyors that come and sit on the domes and the dome spans you know that distance and that that dome that we built that was 300 feet in diameter it had a massive conveyor seven foot wide belt um that they stored molybdenum molybdenum ore as a rock that they ored out of a mine um on top of a mountain in colorado and 
It was just incredibly challenging. That that project, um, the elevation of the project was over 12,000 feet. Um, so our equipment didn't want to run. Um, it was it was the biggest dome we'd ever built. Um, it had a massive load on it. Um, Why do they put loads on top of it? Does it take stuff out while you're storing in it out? So no, they they run a conveyor up and they put the the ore in the dome from the top. So they store ore in the dome. Yeah. And then they have to be able to get it out too. Yeah. Then they have a reclaim system that, and a tunnel that they pull. So it the out. domes are amazing because they can they can carry a lot of weight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. No one had ever done these things before. No one had ever done that, and, and it's scary. Um, and and we've had some challenges um, doing that. And so that's been challenging. So, like, things outside of your control that have been just hard to, like, that come up. And also innovation has been hard. Yeah. Also. Yeah. But that's, like, kind of what you like of it. Yeah, the that hard is. Things are... that, that is, yeah. So, and you've started... You started a few businesses since you graduated school. You've had different jobs. Can you give some advice to entrepreneurs who are starting businesses? Like, what's what are things that you would tell them? Uh, I think, I think what I would say is most people have tried and failed at what you're trying to do. If you want to do something, look at how other people have tried to do it, and try not to invent the wheel. Try and figure out everything that other people have done and learn it really, really well. You know, if you look at Steve Jobs, he's amazing, but he's he's an aberration. He's not he's not normal. And most of the successes that people will have is taking businesses that are out there and learning them really, really well, and then adding their own unique tweak to them. And and Steve Jobs, you know, he was he was that way. I mean, he he learned the computer business inside and out. But he saw things that no one else saw. And he was willing to to risk going after them. And when you're willing to re- risk going after them, you you fail spectacularly. And Steve Jobs did. He he tried several businesses that that failed spectacularly. And you have to realize that if you're going to try those things, then there's a high likelihood that you're going to fail. Um, and if you do fail, you you just need to get back up and do it again. Okay, so you've hired a lot of people. What's something that you've valued in an employee? And what are things you would tell people to do to impress their boss? So when I, I lived in Las Vegas for a while and I worked for a wonderful guy named Brent Wright. And... He had started a business, an engineering firm, and I'd went to work for him right when he really started. And he hired an assistant. When you're in engineering, you're always working with plans, plans of buildings. And contractors are calling you up, asking you questions. And and contractor may have 5, 10, 15 guys working for him. If he doesn't know the answer on something, they're waiting for him to get the answer. And so... It becomes really important to get that answer as quickly as possible. Well, I remember this assistant that he had that was, she was amazing. I'll just give an example of 
of an interaction with her. And I think this, you know, embodies the perfect employee. A lot of times a contractor call up, call the engineering firm and they get a hold of a, a warm body and they'd say, Hey, I, I need to find this out. And the varied responses are this like, okay, well, um, let me get your, let me get your information. Let me get your phone number and I'll pass this on to John or whomever. You know, that's that's normally what happens. John's not there, but they say, well, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get this to him. And the contractor's like, oh, great. You know, now I'm just going to be three days before I get this information again. And I'll probably have to call again two or three times to get it, which is true. It happens. When you called and gave, when you called and you got a hold of Jody, she would run down the information. I remember one time I was golfing. We went to it was it was a business golf event and I was out on the golf course and at that time we didn't really have cell phones you know we we were out on the golf course we're golfing there were cell phones were around but not everybody had them <laughs> the golf sheriff like is driving around and we see him driving around asking some people questions and he drives up to all of our, our golf court. And he has these plans with him. And he's like, are any of you Jason South? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm Jason South. And he's like, well, I'm sorry, but um, Jody from your office called me. She had me print these plans out. This clouded portion right here, the contractor's on the phone asking her this question. Can you answer it? And I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. So I answered, I gave him the answer. He goes back, gives the answer to Jody, gets her the con the question, and that that just sort of embodies to me, like, you know, if you were tenacious, tr people are not tenacious in getting answers, and if you're tenacious in getting answers, you're gonna do well in life, and and she's doing very very well now, um, because she's just that type of person that doesn't take no for an answer. And she knows what it means to to be in business and knows what it means to um, to service people. And, th and that's if you work for people like that, um, you're always going to be successful. She could have easily said, well, he's golfing or she could have said, well, he's golfing. And I tried to get old, but I couldn't get old. But no, she got the plan. She faxed. She found someone in the office to help her out because she didn't know what to look for. She figured out what the question would be, and then she faxes them over to the golf people and somehow talks them into getting them to run the plans out to me to get the answer. I just I just thought that was a really incredible example of, of tenacity as, as an employee. Yeah, I love that story. I think it's so cool. It inspires me every time I hear it. I already thought of a way that I could probably be better at my job. Okay, so... If it's all right, I feel like we could talk for uh, forever in a day and we'll probably have, have another episode where we can talk about like work and some of the things that you've done. But I really think that something that I wanted to talk to you about is politics because I think it's on a lot of people's minds right now. And you know a lot about politics and how it affects people. So um, let's just why are you involved in politics and like how long have you been politically active? and Why are you? Well, I wouldn't say that I'm really politically active. I, I follow politics a lot um, because 
politics allows us to do the things that we do. If we don't, if we're not engaged in politics and we just say, well, that's up to someone else to figure that out, then we have to accept that outcome. And we've been blessed to be in a republic where we're all able to participate. And so I think it's incumbent upon us to self-educate and and learn about politics and who's representing us and what they represent. Um, because if we choose, if we don't do that, and we choose people that don't represent how we want to live, then we're going to be stuck with the consequences. So you, and you lean more conservative. Yeah. Why do you lean conservative? What made you do that? Well, I think, you know, when I grew up, I remember just being very impressed with John F. Kennedy. When I was in... When I was in school, you know, I didn't pay attention much, but some of the things I paid attention to were some of the speeches that John F. Kennedy gave. He just gave such amazing speeches. You know, his speech about ask not what you can do for yourself, ask what you can do for your country. Ask not what your country can do for you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I already screwed it up, sorry. <laughs> but he also, um, you know, one of my favorite speeches is when he says, you know, we choose to go to the moon. We don't we don't choose to go to the moon because it's easy. We choose to go to the moon because because it's hard. And he he goes on to talk about in doing this hard thing, um, setting this goal, we're gonna we're gonna organize and we're gonna learn all kinds of amazing things. And I, I look at our two-party system, you know, through the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And there is a battle of ideals. And the battle of ideals was like complete freedom versus um, freedom with government oversight. And government oversight definitely has a role to play. But I think... You know, back, say, in John F. Kennedy's era, there was a there was a realistic view of government oversight and that battle of ideas, you know, sort of libertarians view of of complete freedom versus versus government oversight was they were realistic goals. You know, the amount of government oversight, you know, may have overstepped its bounds, but we found harmony in that two party system. Um, because there's examples where you have, you know, complete freedom where monopolies have taken off and and the capitalistic system has not has not benefited the common man. And there's other examples when government, you know, controls everything and has not been benefited the common man. But you look at those two ideals and I, and I think there's a balance. There's a definite balance between those ideals, and the two-party system has worked. And and I I honestly could look at things in the Democratic Party and say, well, there's a lot of good things here. Um, and I look at things in the Republican Party and say, there's a lot of good things here. But it seems as if, to me anyway, we we sort of reached an equilibrium in in those ideals. 
in that um, we've been very, very successful. And I think the Democrats have kind of they've kind of lost the battle because they're they're pressing for ideas that are old and tired now. Socialistic ideals, communistic ideals, Marxist ideals, ideas that have been tried and have failed spectacularly. Um, in so, other countries. In other countries. So while I, you know, I, I think I've always been conservative, um, I recognize that, you know, the role of the two-party system and the role of several of the people in several of the Democrats have created a balance that has worked, that is, has done amazing things. But I think recently... Um, things are becoming radicalized almost. Well, and, and, and drastically so, particularly, you know, in the last really four years. I mean, if you look at, if you look at positions that Barack Obama and Joe Biden were taking, you know, five, six, seven years ago, they've completely flipped and they've thrown them out the window and I, and, and they're, they're moving more towards these ideas that have been tried and they've just failed. And I, and I think they're just, they're just searching for power. What ideas are specifically, do you think, have been tried and fail? Well, socialism. I mean, he he was picking winners and losers. I mean, he look at what he did with Solyndra, which was a solar company. I mean, he picked a specific company, gave him a half a billion dollar loan, and it just failed spectacularly. And and that's what socialism does, you know. It doesn't. Why it doesn't it allow the free market to do its job. Oh, um, so you're like you you shouldn't have to pick one. You should no. let them all kind of compete. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's what you worry about: is one business getting all the power? Well, some of you know you listen to some of the radical ideas, and. They're really not radical ideas. They've been around for forever. I mean, Karl Marx, he wasn't the first one to think of these things. He he collectively put it all together, but he wasn't the first one to think of these things. Um, you know, when I was in college, I got my minor in economics, and um, Dr. Israelson was one of my professors. He was amazing. He spent a lot of time in Russia, Russia, uh, during, during the communistic reign and and it's unbelievable the stories that what people went through um, that allowed government to try and govern their lives they messed up so horribly um, it, just, it just wasn't even funny so what values like American values do you think make America great and also are you fighting to keep i guess well i think um you know if you if you just look at our economy and you look at what's worked and what hasn't worked uh you know president trump you know looked at so many things that weren't working and he changed those policies um you know high taxes he changed the corporate tax brought back a ton of money back into the united states and in investment and he also said, you know what, we're going to make things in our country. You know, he 
you know, on the free market side, I think a lot of business people shipped a ton of jobs away from America that should never have happened. And that's, you know, that's on the right side. Business, big business got in bed with, with Republican politicians and they allowed them to ship our manufacturing to China and to Mexico and to all these other countries. And that never should have happened. Um, because we want to keep it, jobs and business here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we can compete with those countries if we don't have all the regulations and handcuffs on us. And we, and we have to. I think the COVID has showed us that we can't, the China virus, as Trump says, has showed us that we have to be able to be self-sustaining. It's, it's critically important. Okay, so a lot of people don't like Trump. What, what do you think? Why do you support him, I guess? Um, you know, Trump is an interesting character, but if, if you look at what Trump has done, and, and I was a Trump supporter from the very beginning because there's a positivity about Trump that I really liked. Um, yes, he's bombastic. Yes, his ego, ego doesn't fit in the same room with him. But there's a positivity that I, I have always felt like, look, where there's a will, there's a way. And I, and I feel like that that will has to be really, really strong. And I recognize that Trump has a very, very big will. And I also appreciate so much that he loves America and he's proud to be an American and he's proud of what we've done in the world. And and he's one that says, hey, look, we are going to be leaders. We are leaders. We are that shining city on the hill. But I look at what he's done for immigration, and and I'm all for immigration. But we need to do it at a rate that we can assimilate people. If we bring in too much immigration too fast, then we lose our ideals, we lose our values, and we have chaos. And right now the Democrats, they want open borders. They want to... Um, they want to allow all these people to become citizens because they know that at least there's a feeling out there that Democrats support welfare and all these programs for immigrants and Republicans don't. And because they do, they're going to get their votes. And that's just, that's just a well-known fact, a well-known fact that Democrats won't tell you. But Trump has said, no, you know, we're going to, we're going to stop illegal immigration. We're going to have people come through the door like they should. And we're going to bring people to this country that, that can help this country. Um, and I just, I just think that's incredibly smart. And it's not racist. Every other country in the world does it. Um, I'm familiar with that because we work in other countries in the world. And we bring labor in. And we deal with all their rules and regulations. And every other country in the world does it. Um, and and it's, it's not a bad way of thinking. It's a, it's a very smart way to think. So on immigration, he's, he's been incredible. 
I think that his tax policy has been wonderful. I think his policy of, of walk softly but carry a big stick, I think that is, and, and what I mean there is build up our military incredibly strong. And if you cross us, you're going to get whacked by a stick. But we're not going to go support all these wars. I mean, he he was so right on these wars. And the Republicans have been, and the Warhawks have been so wrong. Um, so I think he's he's been incredible that way. And I think that he's pulled the cover off the bias in the media. He said, you know, you guys aren't being truthful. You aren't being honest. You're enemies to the state. And, and I believe that's true. I think that the media today and the media for a long time has pushed narratives of how they want to shape America. Rather than just telling us the news, they have an agenda that they want to, they want to shape policy. And that just disgusts me. And Trump has called them out for who they are. And he's an incredibly strong person to be able to do that. So I, you know, I could, I could keep going, but there's just a ton of things that I love about Trump. I don't think he's perfect, but I look at his kids and to have, show me another person that has the money that Trump has and have his kids be um, as well-rounded and productive members of society as his. It's just, that's a very rare thing. And, and it shows discipline and, and, you know, that gets into the very, you know, everyday habits and you're not a person that raises kids like Trump has unless you have a grounded set of principles and morals and ideas um, because you just can't not not to have that kind of access to money you know rich people's kids for the most part they grow up and they have all kinds of problems um, they're not productive members of society I know, I wonder what he did that made them, like, want to be so successful in school and in their jobs and something else that I think is really interesting. And in their families, too. Yeah, and their I mean, families, they're good, they have good families. Yeah. Something else I think is really interesting is that they, they all support him. They all support Trump. Right? Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. And if anyone's going to know something that's bad about Trump, it's their, it's, it's his kids. yeah. So I don't know, and 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 they're they're millennials, most of them, right? Yeah, or all of them. So yeah. I mean, they would fit fit the mold to like call him out if they think he's being racist or yeah any of those things. But so I don't know. I I just I think he's an amazing human being, and and sure he has faults, and it's okay to look at his faults and say those are faults. But he's been so good for America. And and Obama just drove me nuts. I mean, I mean, he, he looked at when he looked at Mitt Romney and said, you know, I'm sorry, Mitt. You know, the 90s, 1980s. You know, with the Russian policy, they want their policy back. And then you know, Russia becomes this big issue. Universal health care. Um, we know what it is. You go to other countries and you know what you get. Our system's not perfect, 
and and government has messed it up. But I've lived in countries where we have universal health care versus our health care. And I know what it is. And it's not as good. No, it's not anywhere near as good. And why isn't it as good? It's because you don't get as much attention. Everything's generalized. Or Well, look, if you, you know, if you break your big toe or if you, you know, need stitches or you have the flu or whatever, um, you're going to get treated and, and, and there isn't a big deal. But if you need an open heart surgery or you need brain surgery, or you need a kidney transplant, or you need something like that, good luck, good luck. Get in line, and most likely you're going to die. You're not going to get treated. Because? Because, they're number one, everything moves at a snail's pace. It's like going to the DMV and getting something processed. It's going to get done, and you can live with that if you need stitches. But if you need a liver transplant or something of that nature, or you have cancer, good luck. And why does and Obama's path, Obama's path would would ruin what we have. Healthcare's like fixing healthcare is a really long subject. Um, I don't know if we have time for that. <laughs> okay, the history in America is being told in many different ways. What do you believe about America? Look, I think if you want, if anybody out there, there's a valuable lesson that we learn with communism. I was in Poland, and it's a funny story. We were negotiating a contract with CMEX to build um, some cement storages in Poland. And the contract that we were using as a basis to start with was translated from Russian to Polish to English. And it was just a mess. The fellow that we were working with, who was Polish, he was a funny guy. He said, as we were going through this contract, he said, well, this reminds me of times of old in Poland who went through communist rule. He said, you know, one of the tenets of communism is, and this wasn't, this was the black market tenant. This wasn't the stated tenant. This is the black market rule that everybody understood, but but was never published by the Communist Party. So the, the black market tenant was that if you could not convince someone, you confuse them. And today that is a position that many of these people that are pushing these tired ideas are are doing. They are confusing them with all kinds of different different things. If you say something long enough and loud enough, even though it's not true, people will start to believe you. I mean, the truth in America has been, it's, it was very well documented. If you read the book 1976 by David McCullough, um, it outlines, it's a, it's a tremendous book. It's a, it's a teeny microcosm of all of the data that is there on, on things that happened. Um, but it's a very honest story of how the Revolutionary War happened and what happened during the Revolutionary War. And this idea that for 250 years we've been teaching things that are not true is just not true. It's just an effort to confuse people. 
Gotcha. So, you mean, yeah, I think that's something that's hard right now is a lot of people don't know how to feel about America and they feel like maybe it is inherently racist or we are systematically racist or systemically racist or... Um, no, yeah. no, we're not. We're not even close. No, Has there been racism in America? Yes. Is there racism in America? Yes. But it's dwindled from systemic levels to very, very, very small levels. And and most of the people that are racist today are race baiters that make their living off of pushing race and differences in race relations. Um, and it's, you know, it, in my opinion, there's just no place for it. Um, but they get followers. People listen to them. And again, what they try and do is confuse you. They can't convince you, so they try and confuse you. What do they do? They tell you half-truths, and they flat-out make things up. You know? You listen to Joe Biden the other day. He said, ah, Thomas Edison did invent the light, invent the light bulb. A black man invented the light bulb, which is completely not true. What advice would you give to people who are nervous about the future of America and like maybe that their kids aren't going to grow up in the same America they had? Yeah, I think it's a definite danger, but I don't think, you know, I think we have to look to the positive things, have a positive outlook, have a winning outlook, because our future is what we make it. If we entertain tired ideals that have been tried and, and proven to fail, then we're our own worst enemy. Um, you know, we need people that can that can look ahead and be positive and 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 use ideas that have worked. We're not gonna ever live in a society where everyone is equal. It's just not gonna happen. There's gonna be billionaires and millionaires and wealthy people and middle income and poor people. There just will be, and it doesn't matter whether we live in a socialist country or we live in a free market country, you're going to have both of those things. It's just, if you live in a socialist country, then if you're in the middle, you don't even have a chance to climb out of the middle. So how, I guess, changing gears, just to, just to end here, um, I wanted to ask you, like, if you want, had to give someone a recipe for how to get the most out of life, what would that be? <laughs> um, I would say work hard. Be kind to other people. Be generous. Love your family. Do everything for family because at the end of the day, your family that you have around you, they are your biggest supporters. They are the people you're going to spend the most time with. They are the ones that are going to Hold you up, pick you up when you're down, give you support when others don't. I would say always be kind to family. Okay, thank you so much for sharing so much good advice and so many good stories with us and experience. I think there are a lot of things that can be learned from this, and I love talking to people who have experienced a lot and can share a lot, so thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, and you've taught me and a lot of people a lot of things, so... Just really grateful to have you, and you're an awesome dad. Oh, you're an awesome daughter. I love you. Thank you. Okay, guys, this is kind of long, but 
me and my dad like talking. So <laughs> thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you have a great day. And this was another episode of Ways to Live podcast. <laughs>